Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews. We're studying this great book. We're in chapter 3. The title of our sermon series is called Jesus is Better. Jesus is Better. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we normally say and continue to say. Bible's in the back. If you don't have one, please keep it if you don't own one. But we are in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Here, I'm going to read our text, mes- our text message, I was going to say, text message. It is a text message. Our text this morning, Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. God had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now if you notice, chapter 3 verse 1 starts with the word therefore. Whenever you see that in Scripture, you want to know what is therefore, therefore. It's pointing back. What's the context? Well, we know that this unknown human author has given us this divine letter written to us by God, the Holy Spirit. The purpose is to declare the supremacy, the sufficiency, supremacy, superiority, and sufficiency of Christ as an exhortation. Some people believe that this was partly a sermon that was written down. As an exhortation to remain faithful, to grow, to to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. This mainly Jewish congregation is being tempted during persecution to go back to ritualism. And in part, or in particular, the Old Testament laws and regulations and rituals that was written by Moses. The human mediator of the law to God's people. And the author wants us to make much of Jesus declaring that he is better than anything in this world that this world has to offer, including the Old Testament rituals, even that which was given to us by Moses called the Word of God, the law of God, the will of God. Now, that may not mean much to you this morning. Uh, not, I don't know how many Jewish folks are here. We're mainly a Gentile congregation. Uh, But there are things in our life, there are things in our life that we love to run to, to cling to, to cherish to, in order to get through life's ups and downs, difficulties and trials in our lives. There are a lot of things, other than God, we run to for our ultimate rest, our ultimate hope. And, And we, like the recipients, need to keep going back to Jesus, back to the gospel, The author, in the first two chapters, makes two very important, hopefully you picked it up by now, but if not, I'm going to remind you, two very important aspects of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, chapters 1 and 2. It is his divinity, his his deity, and his humanity. His deity and his humanity. We learned in chapter 1 that God has spoken through the prophets, but now he speaks finally and fully through the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
He is, the author says, the creator, the sustainer, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, makes purification for our sins, sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high with all supreme, supreme, superiority and, and authority. Jesus is the Son, he says, that no angel has ever been spoken to like that, that Jesus is the Son of the same nature as God. He has all the authority and place of supremacy. He is greater than the angels. And then the author makes it clear that we shouldn't drift away, chapter 2, verse 1, from Christ, from the message of the gospel that was declared to us first by the Lord himself. That this God-man who came is the eternal, co-equal, co-being with the God of the Old Testament. An unbelievable statement. But then he makes a wonderful and true statement about the humanity of Christ. And why the humanity of Christ is important. And what does the humanity of Christ actually accomplish. And I will tell you this morning that many, many heretical and cults have been formed through those two important aspects of Christ's life, his deity and his humanity. And what they try to do is they try to talk down and, and deface and to really bring down those areas of life. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormon that refuse to deal with and rea- really believe the truth about the deity of Christ. He's just a created being. Then you have docetism in the, old, in the first century, but we see it today in, in things like New Age where, where Jesus didn't really have a human body. It's, where it's all about spiritual beings and this New Age about the spirit over the, over the natural uh, order. These two truths the author lays out that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. In fact, he is fully man like Adam was who he says in chapter 2 if you look verses 5 through 9, that, that Adam in creation was given dominion over the earth, but because of sin, Adam in all of creation, all of mankind after that, because of sin has lost dominion over the earth, but someday we will, we will have dominion again. When, when Christ comes back and reigns and rules, that man and woman will have authority and dominion over the earth under the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, we said a couple weeks ago that that was an encouragement to them because they were being severely persecuted, severely persecuted. I mentioned this week, I was preaching in Hebrew somewhere else. It wasn't, you know, they didn't like me or, you know, those people were, were murdered. They, they had their homes confiscated. It was a very severe persecution. And they want, and he's reminding them that this world is not our place. It's not, it's not the end, that someday Christ will reign and we will reign with him. What an encouragement that Jesus is the second and he's the better Adam. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him a little lower than the angels because he took on humanity. Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered unto death. He tasted death for everyone. And our author's making that clear. Because of Christ's humanity, his incarnation, his obedience, his suffering, his resurrection, his, his glorious crowning achievement. He'll bring many sons to glory. We talked about that last week. He's been perfected through suffering. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 14. He, he shared in flesh and blood. He destroyed death and the devil's power over final death. Pastor Chris did a great job last week. He said this. His death was the destruction of death itself. His death was the destruction of death itself. Chapter 2 ends. Look with me. Two things really important about his humanity and his deity. Number one, he makes propitiation for the sins of his people. Because God is 
in Jesus Christ as fully man. He could identify with his people, and he could die for his people. And look what it also says, that he's able, he, he, he's t- he suffered and he's tempted that he's able to help those who also will be tempted. So you have this humanity, this full humanity of Jesus, who identifies with us, dies for us, pays the penalty for our sins because he identifies with Adam, yet he does it perfectly. And we have this wonderful picture of the deity of Christ who's reigning and ruling and sovereign over creation. And we get to chapter 3, therefore. Therefore. Consider Jesus. Consider these beautiful aspects of the person and work of Jesus. Consider Jesus. What are we to consider? Three things. Oh, you know what? Let's go back. Let, let, before we go, uh, consider who we are. Let me put this out there, you guys, if you want to write it down, the two of you that do it. Consider who we are. Consider who he is. And consider our hope. Okay? That's the three-point outline. Uh, what I want to do, though, before we get started, I want the word consider. If you read the word consider Jesus, you might think, all right, I'll, maybe. Maybe I'll, Kind of consider, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. That's not what the word means. That's not what this word consider means. Actually, if you have an NIV, they actually do a better job. The NIV, I don't usually say that. The NIV is a good translation. Don't email me. Um, <laughs> the NIV is a good translation, but they actually do a better job here. The NIV says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. The word, the Greek word means to apply one's mind diligently to something, to, to express attention, attention, a continuous devotion, observation to. It's not like, ah, uh, yeah, if you feel like it. In fact, in the gospel according to Luke, Jesus invites us here is to consider, to think of the ravens and, and the lilies. I read this week during my study that uh, someone who, who tight walks across, let's say, a canyon, Crazy that I, I, you know, I can't even climb on a roof. But anyway, they don't want to look around. You don't see them looking around. You see them looking straight. Reminds me of Peter, right? Jesus walking on the water. Peter says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, come on out. I'm coming. Got his eyes fixed on Jesus. Steps right out on the water and starts to walk. What happens? He looks around. Down he goes. Consider Jesus, focus, concentrate. That's what that word means. Be singly minded on Jesus. So how do we do that? What does that mean? Number one, first thing it means is our identity. One word, our identity. We see we have a new identity. What does that mean? What, what is an identity? Our identity answers questions like who we are. What does it mean to be who you are? Where, where do we get our meaning, our, our purpose, our value? What, what do we think about ourselves when no one's around? In the deep quietness of our souls, what do we really think about who we are? Look what the author says. He says, you are what? Holy You may not think of yourself as holy. Actually, if you do in and of yourself, you're probably full of pride. But this word holy, or the adjective is the holy ones, the author is using of everyone in the church. I want to point that out. Not just new Christians, but mature Christians, both. 
It doesn't mean they're perfect ones. He doesn't say, oh, you perfect ones, that they never sin. It's actually where we get the word saint. Holy, saint, sanctified comes from the same word. And in many times in the New Testament, when the Bible calls us holy or, or saints, they're talking about the, all the people of God. He's writing to this church and he's saying holy ones. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. They're the ones that are writing the letter. To who? All the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, the overseers, that's the pastors and the deacons, the two roles in the church. He's not talking about a group of people that somehow perform certain miracles. We hear about that today in certain traditions, some acts of, of mercy, and now all of a sudden, because of these things they do, they have been designated as saints. The word holy or saint is not first what you do, but what God has done for you, okay? Not, not first what you do, but what God has done for you. There is a sense in the New Testament where we are to be holy, and to become more holy, to grow in sanctification. That simply means to grow in Christ-likeness, to be more like Jesus. You've been a Christian for a few years. Hopefully, you're walking in that direction. You're being more patient, more kind, and you're moving in the direction of Christ-likeness. But that's not what this author is saying here. This is our new identity. This has to do with what God has done. God is the one who set us apart for himself, and that's where the root word of holy means to be set apart from. John 17, high priestly prayer. Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. Talking about his disciples. For, for their sake, his disciples' sakes, I consecrate myself. I've been set apart that they too, we, the body, the disciples, may also be sanctified, set apart in truth. So the author here is reminding the church, his persecuted church, by calling them holy that they belong to, we belong to God. We have been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and now we and them have a new trajectory. We're walking in a new path. We've been set apart from the world and set apart for God's pleasure. From the world, for God's pleasure, his purposes and his service. So all saints, excuse me, all believers are saints, not by our own virtue, but by God's grace and work of his spirit. One of the things we need to be reminded, and I think that's what he's doing here, and I'm going to remind you this morning, is that sanctification is both a process and a position, a present reality. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 gives this litany of, of sins, and then he says this, chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were, past tense, you were washed, that's in the blood of Jesus, you were, past tense, sanctified, set apart from the world to God. You were justified, made, declared righteous, remember, and given the righteousness of Christ in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now that, that you were sanctified is an aorist verb. What's interesting, it's passive. In other words, it's a snapshot of what God has done in the past and it's a present reality. Not something we did, it's something God has done for us. He does the setting apart. So yeah, we're also to grow in our holiness, in our Christ-likeness, but there's a sense, and I, I want you to catch this this morning. There's a sense in that we are growing into what we already are. There's a sense in which we are growing in Christ-likeness, growing in the Word of God, in Christ-likeness, what we already are as holy children of God. There's that progress. If we get that backwards, we lose what God is saying. 
to us as his children. So, when we run after things in this world, when we run after things in this world in order to find our, our, you know, our, our meaning, our purpose. When, when we run after the things in order to find uh, ultimate value, we're actually not acting as the children that we are, that God has declared us to be. So he's telling that to the persecuted church, telling us that this morning. When we're not acting, when we're acting like children of God, we're, we're finding our ultimate satisfaction, pleasure, meaning, and purpose in Christ. When we're not, we're not acting like those children. Now, Dr. Neil Anderson said this. Um, I don't know. I've known this quote for probably 27 years, one of those things that just sticks with you, right? He says, it's not what you do that declares who you are. It's who you are that declares what you do. Okay, does that make sense? It's not what you do that declares who you are. It's who you are that declares what you do. That's why we must humbly and consistently preach the gospel to ourselves. Uh, and reminding us who we are, who we belong to, because as Calvin said, our, our hearts are little idol factories, reaching for things to find meaning and ultimate satisfaction in other things other than God himself, reminding the people of God, be secure, be, be uh, in Christ, look to Jesus. He has set you apart. You belong to him. That's your deep identity. But notice what else he says. He doesn't just call them holy. He calls them holy family. A holy brothers, it includes women. Holy family. Your, indi- your, your identity includes not only who you are, but who you belong to. We belong to each other. We're, we're a new family in Christ. And as the author already said back in chapter 2, we share in the brotherhood of Christ himself. Again, Chris said last week, those who are in Christ are his beloved brothers and sisters. Our identity has been radically changed from enemies to brothers with Christ and with and fellow children of God, end quote. And what I want us to think about and see this morning is how this new family, this new community, this new people of God that we belong to Christ in union with Christ shape us as the people of God. Let's be honest. Like it or not, we continually, we have been and we continually be shaped by our earthly families. Some of it all not that good, right? Right? You look at your kids and you think, yeah, they got that from me. <laughs> I'm constantly telling one of our kids, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. Right? <clears throat> so how would the reality of our belonging to each other in union with Christ really shape us today? How does, that, how does that work? Now, I want to get it right. We're not saying, listen, act this way and then you become the child of God. Act this way and you're part of God's family. We're saying the opposite. Now that we're a part of God's family, the gospel tells us in Christ we become God's fam- part of God's family, this is how we ought to act. As I said, it's not what you do that determines who you are, it's, it's, it's who you are that determines what you do. We live in a, in a very individualistic culture, um, and we, children of God, we need to work really hard at being a family. And because we share the same identity, because we are on the same trajectory, the purpose, the pleasures, and the service of God, we ought to be helping one another to that end. We ought to be looking together for the glory of God, working toward his glory, working toward his service, 
sharing in the gospel together, to walk in holiness together. So we are shaped by who we belong to, and that shape should show us, or at least give us trajectory to helping each other, encouraging each other to walk in holiness. There's also a sense, I think, when we talk about family, the church being a family, there's a, there's a spiritual bond among brothers and sisters in Christ that is different and I think even more deeper than our natural families. Our bond, our union with Christ is an eternal bond. Now, now don't hear me saying go treat your natural family poorly. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when Christ was teaching his disciples in a packed house and his family, his brothers and sisters, his half-brothers and half-sisters came to the door, he said, to Mark 3, to his disciples, who are my mother and brother? And looking about to those who sat around, he said, here are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So my question for us this morning is, are we working? And it's work toward that kind of relationships? Are you involved with people in your community groups? Are you involved in a community group? Are you, are you connecting with like-minded, Christ-exalting brothers and sisters who are helping you and spurring you on, Hebrews will say, to love and good deeds, to Christ-likeness? It's not an option. This isn't like, this is, this is a command of God and all of Scripture. Jesus made that statement, and I would say, you know, and, and here's, here's something else to think about. I, I'm going to be balanced on this, so hear me out. It is good to have close friends, very close friends that are not believers in Christ, that are not walking the same path. But if that's all you have and that's all you're leaning on, you really need to rethink that. Because the spiritual bond we have with brothers and sisters in Christ is eternal, it's spiritual, it's, it's union with Christ. Does that mean you shouldn't have non-believers as friends? I'm, please, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that our closest friends and people that we are connecting with should be helping us and spurring us and pushing us toward Christ. Okay? I hope I made that clear. Holy family, what are they doing? Look what it says. Shares in the heavenly calling. Sharing common blessing, a common privilege of this heavenly calling. I think there's two aspects of the heavenly calling that we share. We only share identity. We, we only, not only should we consider our identity, consider who we belong to, but consider this heavenly calling. Number one, we've been called from heaven. Elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Timothy 1.9, it's a, a holy calling. It's not a general call of an invitation to the gospel. That's not what this means. We're talking about that call of God where he renews and he awakens and regenerates the heart. It's the call of God that creates life, eternal life. It was the call of God that set us apart from sin, from the world, that set us apart not only from the world but to God. It's the calling for salvation and grace that's prompted not by anything we do, not by our works, not by our deeds, not by our own power, but by God's good pleasure before the world began. The scripture is clear. We make a decision to follow Christ. A real decision to follow Jesus. But let me tell you, that's not part of the salvation experience. It's the result of what God has already done. He awakens us. He frees us. He doesn't violate our will. He liberates it. And we see the beauty of Christ. We hear from heaven and we respond. And we share that as brothers and sisters in Christ. That heavenly calling, that awakening, that renewing calling of God 
when he first brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But we're not only called from heaven, we're called to heaven. In other words, we are sharers, as Paul would say, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, of his glorious future that God has prepared for each of us, headed to a new heavens and to a new earth. The writer of Hebrews, if you've been reading this letter, and I hope you are, talks a lot about this new kingdom, this unshakable kingdom. He says in chapter 11, chapter 13, and other places, Abraham was looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. Chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city here in this world, but we seek the city that is to come. Now remember the context. Remember the context. This is a Jewish congregation going back to or being tempted to go back to ritualism, going back to an earthly calling, an earthly inheritance. And he's reminding them of Christ, the spiritual calling, the the heavenly calling, the the inheritance that we receive, which is far greater. This in the midst of persecution and trials. Remember, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. These persecuted believers, to remember who they are, what they've called to, what they're sharing in, the blessings of the kingdom, the citizens' kingdom, the citizens, citizens of a new kingdom. And by addressing them this way, and I'm hoping it's doing it, doing it for us, it's refocusing them, or at least bringing to, to, to more clarity the beauty and the glory of Christ. Remember, I've said this before, how you think, or what you think about your future will change the way you live life today. We have a new identity. Christ has called us to himself. We've been brought into a new family and we're headed into a new and better kingdom. That is who we are. Consider that. Now we need to consider who he is. Look at 1B. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The only time in scripture Jesus is called the apostle. The word means set, sent ones. J, uh, Jesus spoke about being sent by the Father many times in the gospel accounts, ten times alone in John's account of the gospel. He was sent into the world. Again, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Just listen to this about Jesus' sentness. I glorified you, Jesus speaking to the Father. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I'm here to do that. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I, Lord Jesus, have come from you, Father. I've come from you, and they believe that you sent me. As you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. See the sentness? In the first century, an apostle was someone who was sent by a delegation uh, like the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who ruled over Israel. And when they were sent, they were sent with all the authority, all the authority that they possessed, the sending bodies possessed. Full power, full authority of the sending one. They were sent in that authority. And Jesus here is being sent to fulfill a definite mission, a plan that God has for him. Not only to proclaim truth, but to manifest the truth in his person and in his work. That is an apostle. Now we don't have capital A apostles, I mentioned this before, that have the same authority like Peter and James do. there's a sense that we have small, small A apostles, sent ones. I don't like to use that term. It's too confusing. But gee, even those men, even Peter and James, they were fallible. They gave us the scriptures, but they were fallible men. 
Jesus, the eternal, perfect Son of God, is being sent as a representative of God the Father in full humanity and full deity to man. That's what apostles do. But notice what else he is. He is what? A mediator. Do you see the balance? The apostle represents God to man. The high priest represents man to God. That's what high priests do. They mediate between sinful, needy man to a holy God. We need a mediator. I was thinking this week, you know, how many times have we seen in the news um, some, some people who have done some really terrible crimes and represented themselves, right? If you think of Ferguson, 96, the Long Island commuter train, or Dylan Roof recently is the guy that killed all those people in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. And then what did they do? They, they, they represented themselves. How did it go? Not really good, did it? Now, if you get arrested or stand before a judge, we're not talking about a traffic ticket, right, which is like something really serious. Do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea to stand before the judge alone? Bad idea. How much more between, how much more should we think that we're going to walk into the caught cosmic room of Almighty God who is perfect, holy, and just and think that we can represent ourselves? If you're here this morning and you don't have a representative, his name is Jesus, who died in your place, who rose from the dead, who is your advocate before the Father, who says, I've died for them, I rose for them, you're going to stand by yourself. It's going to be a lonely place. It is a bad move. It is a bad, eternally bad move. What the author is saying is, don't turn from your public profession. Your public confession of him as your apostle, sent from God to represent him, As high priest, the one who is human, who represents us, a a sinful, needy people, into the presence of God. Whatever the cost may be, don't forget him. Consider him. Who, look, verse 2, was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in God's house. Now, the author says, before he said Jesus is better than angels, now he says, what? Jesus is better than Moses. This great prophet, lawgiver, and deliverer. It is, it is, there's no way that I could, there's no way, no words that I could say to make you understand how deeply valuable and tremendous amount of reverence that Moses had to the Jewish people as a major patriarch, probably even second to Abraham. But notice what the author says. This is beautiful. He doesn't say, forget Moses. He's a nobody. He doesn't disparage Moses. He begins by making a comparison. Christ was faithful. Moses was faithful. Two men of faithfulness. God chose Moses uh, uh, to represent. God chose Moses to represent him to Pharaoh while in slavery. God chose Moses to represent him in the wilderness. Moses was faithful, not perfect. He represented God to man and even man to God. He went on, he went on behalf of man before the Lord, for the, for the people who are grumbling and, and arguing. It's important for the writer to make it clear that in exalting Christ, he and other believers are not depreciating Moses. Verse 3. Jesus has been counted, though, worthy of more glory than Moses. There's a comparison. Now there's a contrast. Counted more worthy and more glory than Moses and much more glory as that builder of the house has more honor than the house itself for every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, verse 5, was faithful in God's house as a servant. Notice what he says, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Jesus Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
See the comparison? And now we see the contrast. Moses was a temporary servant, whereas Christ is the eternal son, heir who builds the house of God. Moses was a faithful steward in the house, but Christ is its heir and owner. This means that Moses' ministry was not in conflict contradictory to Christ's ministry, Moses was a servant whose labor was part of Christ's ultimate, finished, fulfilled work. Moses, look what it says, Moses testified to the things that are to be spoken later. That's Jesus, the fulfillment of that. Moses loved God. Moses gave us the law. Jesus is God, and Jesus wrote the law and fulfilled the law. And the implication is clear. To go back to something other than Christ is to go from the greater to the lesser. Why are you going in that direction? Now, if you have a Bible, turn to John 5. I just want to point something out. Because he said Moses was going to speak. Moses spoke of him. And, 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 and <clears throat> excuse me. In John 5, great chapter about the deity of Christ. Jesus heals an invalid on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath. And the the Jewish people say, you know what? That's a deliberate violation of the law of God, the Sabbath law. Of course, Jesus never broke the law, so he just broke their stupid rules. And he does that often. I love it. Jesus does not defend himself. All right, let let me explain the Sabbath to you. You know what he does? Jesus proclaims to them and asserts his equality, his union, his oneness with the Father. Chapter 5, verse 17. My Father is working until now, and I'm working. Don't tell me I'm violating the Sabbath. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Like father, like son, like father, like son. Jesus is claiming to have the same prerogatives, privileges, and exclusive rights as God. And after he shows them that, look down at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. I don't think I've come here to accuse you to the Father. There is one who already accuses you. Look what it says. Moses, on whom you have what? Set your hope. See where the hope is set? On Moses. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, you're not going to believe my words. I mean, think about the first five books as Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Think of how much that pointed to Christ, right? The tabernacle spoke of the indwelling presence of God. Jesus is the tabernacle. The year of Jubilee, slaves were released, land was returned. Jesus pointed to Jesus' great deliverance. The lambs, the bulls, the sacrifices spoke of his great atoning work on the cross. The Old Testament Israel drank from the spiritual rock and that rock was Christ. In John 6, Jesus taught that Moses gave him the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven, for I am the bread of life. All these Old Testament pictures and, and, and types are fulfilled in Christ. In fact, Moses said this in Deuteronomy 18. This is awesome. The Lord your God will raise up, God speaking to Moses, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet, raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers It is him you will listen to. Moses spoke of a day that God had given him revelation that Jesus was going to come. The ultimate purpose of the books was to point to Jesus. So when the author describes, listen, when the author describes Moses as a faithful servant in God's house, he describes Jesus as the builder of the house. Now he's not talking 
if you're familiar with the Old Testament, he's not talking about the tent of meetings or this temporary tabernacle. When he uses the term house, building of a house, he's talking about people. It is the people of God. And what this passage teaches us that there is a, a basic continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. There are differences. The Old Testament looking forward, the hour we're looking back to the cross. There are some differences. I don't want to get into that. But despite the differences, there's one people under the, the redemptive historical work of God. One people of God. So Jesus, yeah, he's compared to Moses, the great prophet, but he's greater superior, more glorious. And, and the argument that this author is making, and we'll move on from here, is not that Moses is bad. Don't listen to him. He really wasn't helpful. Listen to Jesus. He's good. You should listen to him. He was helpful. That's not what, the, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is Jesus is good. Moses is good, but Jesus is better. Think, servants answer the door and bring the visitors to the owner of the house. Don't, don't, don't run to the servant, run to the heir. Don't run to the temporary servant, run to King Jesus, who's the heir of all things, the owner of the building. Nothing wrong with Moses, but wouldn't you rather see the son? Consider who he is. Now, let finally consider our hope. And we are his house, his people, right? What do houses do? What do you do in houses? You dwell in them. God dwells in us. Yes, he dwells in us as individuals, but he dwells with us corporately. Family, we need to see this this morning. We are his house, not you. We are his house. Peter says, as you, you all, the church, come to him. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Jesus, chosen and precious. You yourselves, you, the family of God, you are living stones, plural, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's First Peter 2. What he's saying is, remember the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. Remember the temple that was built stone upon stone. And when the temple was done, the Shekinah glory, which is the presence of God, came and filled that place. Well, we as the people of God, as we gather together stone by stone, people by people, we are building a spiritual house where the glory of God will shine. The greater the building, the more we're connected to each other, the greater the manifestation of God's glory. That's why churches, when they're fighting, praise God we aren't, but churches who are fighting and bickering and there's this, this unity, there's, there's no glory. It's not just a human institution. It is divine building of God. Look what he says. If, right? If indeed we hold fast our confession confidence and our boasting in the Lord. Mark that. Mark that in your Bible. The point of the statement is to encourage faith and hope in the face of trouble and persecution. Okay? Now, the writer is not saying, since you are a house, God has built. You better hold fast, because if you don't hold on, you don't earn your salvation, you better hold tightly, because if you let go, you're done. If that were the case, I'd done a long time ago. What's beautiful about this passage, all the scripture, is the, is, the, is, the, is the balance between 
the eternal security of the believer and the necessary preservation of the believer. All true Christ followers will continue in the faith until they're gathered together, one people under God, as Christ followers, they will hold fast. Now, let me make this clear. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But the testing of our faith comes through our willingness to persevere under difficulty and and persecution and really all of life. Perseverance is the sign that we were genuinely his. Unlike Paul's companion, Demas, in 2 Timothy, or, or, or Judas, they reveal their true selves by their walking away. 1 John 2.19 again. They were with us, they were among us, they looked like us, they hung out with us, and then they went out from us. Why? Because they were never really of us. If Christ dwells in us, he will help us remain courageous confident and hopeful to the end. We're not saved by being steadfast and firm in our faith, but our courage and our hope do reveal that our faith is real. And Paul, excuse me, the author is writing this, telling them to hold fast their confidence and rejoice in the Messiah firm to the end, and in fact, they will prove that they were the house of God. If they don't, if they turn aside... They go back to the systems of this world. They go back to the sacrificial sacrifice system of this world. Then they never really understood the gospel. And that's true for us. That's a scary thought. But if we go back to the world and we never come back to Christ, if we, if we now abandon everything and we never come turn around, it's the difference between just backsliding and having periods of disobedience. If we just turn aside and we end that way, we have never truly known the Lord. It's not only the profession of your faith, it's the possession of your faith. Dr. Ligon Duncan said this, the if in this text should not unsettle us about our assurance, but to make sure that we are neither resting our hopes solely upon a past experience, nor to have started with Christ and shifted our faith to something else. The ifs is designed to make sure that our assurance is rightly grounded in Christ alone. We must not rely solely upon a past decision as an index of our present spiritual health. We must be able to answer the question, not simply have you trusted Christ, but are you trusting Christ? Notice the text. The text does not say whose house we will continue to be if we hold fast. That's not what it says. Look what it says. It says you are God's house if you continue confident and with hope. You are, not you will continue to be. There's a big difference between the two. Hold fast means to to hold one's course, to press on. The word confidence means all speech. There's, There's a confidence, there's a boldness coupled with rejoicing for those who have fixed their eyes upon Jesus Christ. You know, we use the word hope a lot. Biblical hope is not, I really hope the Yankees won. They did not. My hope is dashed. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. Not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. 
And what is our confidence? What is our boasting? It's in the hope of Christ, who is the creator, the sustainer, the radiance of his glory, who made purification for sin, who sat down in authority at the majesty on high with all supremacy, all superiority, totally sufficient for our sins. Our confidence, our courage, our boldness, our boasting is in Christ. He is our only confident, sure hope. That's what the author is saying. Think about that kind of hope. It's not just your original confession. It's staying focused, concentrating, being singly minded on Christ, looking to Jesus. Napoleon, one of the greatest military leaders, used to bring his generals into his tent before they went out to battle so he could look at them in their face and give them marching orders to take their men out to battle. You know, in the same way, we are to look at the face of Christ. His once crowned brow with thorns and now exalted to the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father. And Napoleon and every other leader will be, will be and has been defeated either by others or by death itself, but not Jesus. Consider Jesus part of his household if we don't drift away. So family, let us conclude this way. What are you hoping in this morning? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is possible to drift away from fixing our eyes upon the hope of the gospel. So if you're a believer this morning, as we respond to the word of God, we're going to ask the Lord to open your heart and mind to see again the beauty of Christ, to, to return to your first love. But maybe you're here this morning, you're hoping in something else, in yourself, in your money, in your health. Maybe good luck, work, relationships. Consider, fix your eyes upon Jesus. The only one who came down from glory who lived that perfect life, God himself, who is both an apostle sent to us from the Father and a mediator who goes in for us and dies for us and rises for us. Let us worship the Lord together. Let us tear down our idols. Let's keep our minds fixed upon Jesus. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. All of your word has been given to us, and we are grateful for it. But this morning, particularly for this, that our hearts and our minds, our pleasures, our affections that seem to wander, we're praying that it would be focused upon you, that we would tear down those things in our lives, those things we are running to, to find meaning, purpose, and value in life. Good things that become idols, Lord, we pray that Jesus will be worshiped, that we will give him the honor to do his name. And Father, if there are some here that have never, ever trusted Christ today, we pray as we sing that they would repent, turn from their sins, and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross on their behalf dying and rising so that they too can have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to you. And we do that through prayer, and that's our prayer today. In Jesus' good name, amen.